This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Melissa Phoebos has bared all in a best-selling series of memoirs. She's written about her experiences with things most people don't have the courage or even the language to speak about. Her first book, Whip Smart, is a memoir about her life as a dominatrix and addict in New York City. The essay collection Abandon Me is about connection and relationships, and Girlhood, which came out in 2021, is about her childhood, but also about the narratives that women and girls are told about what it means to be female. Now she has written a book about writing. It's called Body Work, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative. Phoebos is an associate professor at the University of Iowa and teaches in the nonfiction writing program. Hello, Melissa. Hi, Charity. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I want to start with talking about writing personal narrative, because you talk about the fact that when you first started sharing your story, you didn't feel like it was worth sharing. And that's something you have seen so many people that you have worked with as an instructor go through. Tell me about that experience. Sure. Um, I always imagined that I would, I started off writing poetry, and then I thought I would write fiction. And it wasn't until I was in a graduate program for writing fiction that I started telling my own stories. And this voice sort of um, startled to life inside of me that was that said, you know, people won't care. It's self-indulgent. Um, who are you to think that your story should be interesting to strangers, right? And that is a voice that I've heard um, relayed to me by so many students over the 15 years of my teaching. And I think it really reflects the sort of hierarchies within our own culture, within the publishing industry, which sort of devalue personal stories, however well they might sometimes sell, um, in favor of sort of quote unquote serious literary fiction, which I am of which I am an avid reader, right? Um, but it but it took a lot of sort of courage and backtalk to that voice in order for me to start telling my own stories. Absolutely. And I can imagine, especially with the subject matter that you were sharing, that it would be easier to write about your experiences in fiction as opposed to writing in nonfiction. So tell me more about making that transition from, mm -hmm. because you were writing fiction. That's right. I was writing fiction and I was sort of dressing my own experience up in elaborate costumes Which to try to hide it. Which a lot of writers right? do. So many writers forever. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I sometimes say that there's probably just as much fact checkable truth in writer's first memoirs as there are in their first novels, because you kind of have to get your own story out of the way, even if you are destined to write fiction. But I never imagined I would tell my own story. And in fact, I often encounter this misconception of memoirists that we are into sort of uh, TMI, and we like to talk about ourselves, and we're very brave. And actually, memoirists are some of the most secretive people I have ever met. And I actually <laughs> think that being secretive creates this kind of pressure in people where you want to see your experience named. And writing a book is a way of sort of going public in private, right? No one sees you write the book, even if they read it afterwards. So, but even so, I, I didn't 
didn't know any of that when I started writing memoir. And, you know, I was in, I took a class in grad school and I wrote a short memoir. And afterwards, my teacher said to me, what are you working on? And I said, I'm working on a very serious novel. And he said, first of all, your novel's probably not serious. And second of all, you're now <laughs> writing a memoir. And I said, absolutely not. I would never. But something happened. It was like once I opened the door to my own story, it just galloped out of me. And I was sort of desperate to keep writing it, which I continued doing in secret. I just sort of couldn't stop. And I've always intended to go back to fiction. But the sense of relief and satisfaction and, you know, the rewards of sort of connecting with other people who had similar stories were so great that I've never been able to get away from it long enough to finish my novel. Well, and let me give people who haven't read your earlier work just a a little bit of a, a biography, because you left home earlier or early mm-hmm. before you turned 17 years old mm-hmm. and uh, had a lot of big experiences happen mm-hmm. to you. And you also spent time when you were in college in New York City working as a sex worker, as a dominatrix. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also struggled with addiction. So you had all of these big, big mm-hmm. stories to tell. But those are also things that are really really hard to Mm -hmm. talk about. So Mm -hmm. here you are writing them. And we'll talk more about the power of that act as Mm -hmm. a personal act. But you also knew at some point that other people were going to read this, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I uh, let me just say that before I have written anything that's ever been published, I have made a promise to myself that no one else ever has to see it. Right. And there are many things that I've written that no one has ever seen. Right. Maybe not many, but there are some. (laughs) You wouldn't think so looking at the things I've published, but there are things. (laughs) Um, And, you know, for better or worse, or maybe I should say for better and worse, I'm really gifted at compartmentalization. and, so, you know, my it has facilitated many of my past pursuits that you just mentioned. Um, but I really have a gift for doing this thing that I think is incredibly necessary for memoirists in particular. And that is that I put these kind of blinders on psychologically. And I really focus on the fact that I am alone telling my story in a kind of um, – a chamber of honesty where I am just trying to get closer to the truth of my experience, trying to construct a story of the past that helps me understand it, that helps me come to a place of forgiveness and acceptance for me and the other people in my story. And I am never thinking about strangers reading it, about my family reading it or my students reading it. I just don't think about any of that until I already know what the shape of the story is. And then I can go back and think, okay, What can I take out of here that's going to be hard for the people I love or that's going to make life harder for me? And I take a lot out. But I, you know, and I tell my students this, you cannot think about that until you are further along in the process and you know what the shape of your art is. In the first essay in this book, Body Work, you write a lot about that the most important thing about personal narrative is the honesty. If you are reading something that is not honest, it will not resonate with you. Mm-hmm. It will not keep your attention. It's boring mm-hmm. to, to, to read something that isn't emotionally honest. And yet 
when you were writing, that was something that you struggled with because of that compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. You hadn't dealt with a lot of the emotions of what you had gone through. So mm -hmm. tell me what that process was like to to basically go back in time and try to get in touch mm -hmm. with what you were feeling during some really difficult times of life. It's true. And you know, the first the first story um, that I have about my own experience is often the one that I told myself while I was living it. And I think people who are not writers do this as well. We're constantly constructing a narrative in yeah. which we are the hero or the anti-hero. And that story isn't necessarily the truest, quote, the truest right. version. It's how we justify right? what it's we do. Right. Right? It's the way we keep living, right? It's the way we survive it. But when I sit down to write a story, I'm no longer in an imperiled state. I'm no longer in a, like fight or flight survival mode. I'm sitting at my desk. I'm safe, right? And I often think of it with the analogy of a diorama where I'm going back to the past and I have some pieces, right? But there are parts of experience that we can't be present for, that I can't be present for when I'm living it and that I can't be honest with myself about. And when I'm writing, it's sort of a detective story. I have to go back and retrieve those parts to complete that set of the past so that I can look at the larger story, so that I can can come to a greater understanding of it, come to insights so that I can integrate that story into my life psychologically, into the larger story of my life in a way that allows me to move forward in a healed space, in a state that helps me to teach my students better, to love my partner better. Um, and it's in that way that personal writing really helps me to grow into a better person. It was the people in your workshop who were reading that early mm -hmm. work that told you mm -hmm. that this is not emotionally honest. That's right. What did that feel like to hear that? Here you are yeah, sharing something super, that was hard to share. It was so disappointing because, <laughs> you know, I was writing about this really um, hard experience um, in my early 20s and I wrote about it, I thought, very beautifully and I expected to get lots of compliments the way that I'm sure, you know, my students go into their workshop experiences and everyone was like, yeah, 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 the writing is great, but why were you doing this and what were you feeling? And I said, you know, I wasn't really feeling anything. And they were like, mm, that's not really good enough for us, which was correct, right? Which is the response that I have when I read something where it feels like the writer isn't connected, particularly in nonfiction. I really want to feel the writer figuring it out through the work. And so I owe it to myself and to my readers to do the same thing. And that was the first time that I was called upon to do that. I thought, OK, I better go back to the drawing board and f be more honest with myself. So let's talk again about this idea of having a story that you didn't feel was worth telling. Because I am positive that if somebody else wrote a memoir about the experiences that you went through, that you would read it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're you're confident about that, too. So what do you think it is? And we only have about a minute here. But what do you think it is that conditioned you to believe that that story wasn't worth telling? Well, I think in the broadest sense, Charity, we live in a society that values certain stories over other stories. And you know, our society is governed by a power structure that benefits from the silence of certain people's stories. And I think that that's really what it boils down to, right? It's that sort of stories of bodies, of women, of people of color. These stories are not sort of held up as universal, right? They are thought of for only readers who claim those identities. Right. 
right? And so I think in many ways, that's where that internal bias comes from. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with Melissa Phoebos, author of Body Work, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. I'm talking with Melissa Phoebos. Her latest book is about writing. It's called Body Work, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative. And... Just before the break, we were talking about this feeling that there are stories that people aren't interested in hearing and, and aren't worth telling. And and we do see that over and over again. I even think about the, the most recent Disney movie uh, <laughs> where it's about a young Asian girl and reviews were like, oh, this is too niche. We can't we can't. We can't relate to a story about puberty happening Mm -hmm. to an Asian girl because we're not all Asian. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, we see that all the time. So Mm -hmm. when you're talking with your students and they have that impulse, particularly women and people of color and people who are in marginalized communities, how do you help them get past that? How do you help them think, oh, wait, no, my story is worth telling? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, these biases are pretty easy to argue with, right? They don't hold up under scrutiny at all, right? Um, So I start by saying to my students, you know, one of the things that you mentioned to me earlier in the hour, which is, what are the stories that you love? Name your favorite books. What are the ones that you've reread and reread? And they are almost always stories that would belong on a shelf with their own stories, right? They are stories of people like them, or they're stories of people not like them, but which have a common emotional truth to them, right? Um, and and that it does some of the work to dissuade them from this bias against their own stories. Um, the other thing I tell them is that it doesn't matter if anyone else reads your story. It's worth your time to tell it. And this is one of the things that makes my job so gratifying is that I know a small portion of my students are going to end up publishing books, but I believe in the work of telling your own story because I have seen the way that it changes lives and the ways that it has saved me and transformed my own experience. Um, And then part of it is just saying it over and over and over again. And part of the reason why I wanted to write this book is because I was saying these things over and over and over again. You know, it was was hundreds of times I'd said to my students, you know, do you think that, um, you know, Chekhov or uh, Jonathan Franzen or any of these, you know, um, famous white male writers, many of whose work I absolutely adore, were thinking, gee, I don't know. There's so many stories of white men already in the Western canon. Maybe I should just be quiet. Like that thought did not occur to them. So why should it occur to you? And why should we think that there, because there is already one story in the last five years that you can think of about a female drug addict or a mother and her birth story that we don't need another one. We need these stories told over and over and over again because they are universal topics, because we all relate to the emotional truths in them. 
something that you also get asked a lot mm -hmm. is how do you write these stories, essays, memoirs about people that you interacted with, sometimes in very unsavory ways, mm -hmm. who are still living and may recognize themselves in your work. And, and you write an essay in this collection about that. And, and you take a look at it from several different angles. But the first I want to start with is the fact that you have written about things that, that are hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. And you know that once they get published, your mom's going to read it and your friends are going to read it. And, and people that you care about, whose opinions that you value, who you have long emotional relationships with. So you actually, you mm -hmm. actually sent your first book to your mom and said, hey, you've got to read this. <laughs> and mm -hmm. not just your mom, to everybody. Tell me about that. Yeah. You know, it, it was tempting to just not say anything and pray that no one noticed. But that <laughs> I knew that that was unlikely, particularly I have pretty checked in parents. You know, if I could have given my whole family an abridged version of my first book and all of my books, I would have, but they would they're not those kinds of people. They they they're going to read the whole thing. So you know, I I figured it would feel better to them to read it before everyone got to read it or anyone got to read it, right? And so I sent it to every member of my immediate family and uh, most of my close friends, and I didn't say. Um, can you fact check this against your own experience or I'll change anything you want? But I said, you know, I'm interested in how this lands with you and I'm and I want to have the conversation if you want to have a conversation. If you don't, great. But <laughs> and I said, particularly to my mom, I said, don't call me until you've finished the book. Like, and she called you immediately. She called me 7 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, I told you not to call me until you were done. And she said, Melissa, I am done. I stayed up reading it and I was like ah! um, and she said I kept stopping and then turning off the light to go to sleep and then I would just lie there in the dark and then turn the light back on to keep reading and I said why and she said I had to know that you were going to be okay and it just broke my heart and I was like you know I'm okay but you know in some ways it felt like a testi testament to right. the effectiveness of the book that she was so invested in this character based on me that she needed to know it was okay even though we had just spoken the day before right and it, it's a further testament to, to what an amazing person she is that she said well it was definitely the hardest thing I have ever had to read and I am so proud of you you know it's yeah. one of the moments I was grateful for her as a person and a mother and also that she's a therapist <laughs> that that is really beautiful. Not everybody has responded so well. No. And especially with your second book, which I I was prepared to be a little shocked by some of the things that you said in this collection because of your history of what you have mm -hmm. written. I was most shocked by you writing about your experience of writing Abandon Me, mm -hmm. which was inspired by a relationship you were still in. That's right. And then, of course, the relationship had ended before that essay collection mm -hmm. was published. But you had to face a, a very real situation where you felt like one of the people who figures into that mm -hmm. collection of essays would probably try to sue you. Mm -hmm. So tell mm -hmm. me, <laughs> that that is a very real situation where you have a very real human who you've had yeah. a long relationship with and they are going to recognize themselves even if nobody else does. Yeah. How do you deal with that? 
Uh, well, there's a pragmatic answer to that, which is that you take the advice from the lawyer employed by your publisher <laughs> and you change all of the identifying characteristics to a point that actually can be uncomfortable sometimes to protect everyone, including the writer, me, and the other people. Um, and, you know, I mean, what I will say, I think the most important thing to say about this is that you know, I don't know, I hear from people a lot saying to me, oh, you're so brave. I care too much what other people think to write a memoir. And to that, I want to say, I care what other people think too, you know, like having people be angry at you is terrifying and it's painful, you know. And I think when I'm writing the book, if I had to write it with all of the people who might be mad at me sitting in the room with me, I would never write a word, right? Um, but when I am alone with myself in the room, like there comes this moment of reckoning where I think, okay, you know, like how much of this truth is worth it? Like, who do I really think this story is going to help? And is it worth whatever discomfort might come from someone being mad at me, from someone I'm afraid of being mad at me, you know? And I am always surprised when I get to the point where I where I, I find that place in myself that is absolutely certain that it's worth it. And that no matter what might follow afterwards, I want this story to be available to people who are in emotionally, um, you know, abusive or addictive or torturous relationships, like people who want to recover from addiction. I want them to be able to find the true story of someone who survived it that tells how they did it. And and it's worth it to me, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was it was a scary time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking with Melissa Phoebos. Her latest work is Body Work, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative. And you are sharing so much of yourself in an effort to make sure that other people who are writing know that they are not alone, that you know, so many other writers might be going through similar experiences. You also pull in some of the experiences of other people in history in thinking about that collection, Abandon Me, and writing about a relationship where somebody would recognize themselves and be angry, you shared a beautiful letter from Billie Holiday oh, yeah. to a former lover of hers who was already ready to be angry about uh, a story that Billie Holiday was sharing. How did you first first maybe tell <laughs> us a little bit about about what happened there? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I this letter, I couldn't find the original source of it. If anyone listening knows where the original source of this letter from Billie Holiday to, to Lula Bankhead, her former lover, um, is from, tell me. Um, but I had seen it years and years ago and just saved it in a little file on my desktop because, you know, Billie Holiday just writes to Bankhead and she's like, hey, you know, I'll keep Things it Things you can't say, right? But she said, basically, you know, you know that this all happened. So just sign the release form and don't mess around like we both know the truth here and it was so you know Billie Holiday is a longtime hero of mine um I've loved her music since I was a kid and I thought you know if she can be straightforward about this just let me move through the experience of uh telling my own stories with like one percent of the confidence of Billie Holiday <laughs> and I'll be all right um and so I wanted to sort of pay a little homage to her by excerpting that letter in this book in the essay about writing about other people 
people. You uh, you also share a lot of advice about writing about sex, which is, I'm sure, incredibly useful. I've read a lot of poorly written sex scenes in mm-hmm. books, so hopefully you're doing your part to make sure that that's all going to be better in the future. But with the time that we have left, because um, some of that advice you can't give on the radio, uh, let's talk about really how you think this process has changed you. You leave us with an essay really about confession. And so much of what you have done as a writer kind of falls under that category of confession. So Mm -hmm. many people who write creative nonfiction and write personal narrative are really going through that process. So tell me how you think writing your stories has changed you. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, part of what I wanted to get at in this book is the way that this urge to tell our stories, to recover the parts of the past that we couldn't face previously, to be seen by other people. I wanted to articulate the way that that has been so really uh, inutterably healing for me. And I think that that urge is shared among sort of spiritual practices, like the practice of confession um, arises in so many different religions. Um, And, uh, you know, in therapy and trauma recovery, we see people with intense life experiences, with traumatic life experiences, having this urge to construct a narrative of their experience and to tell it to someone else, whether it's a therapist or a friend or an audience of millions, you know, not that I have that. (laughs) But um, and and I have just experienced over and over firsthand the way that this has utterly transform my relationship to my past. So I really believe that whether you seek publication or not, the process of creating a narrative of making art out of experience is one that can help just about anyone make friends with their past and really sort of um, integrate experiences into our psychology in a way that allows us to move forward and to talk about it without suffering. And what you have done is so much more than personal therapy. Mm-hmm. You have created mm-hmm. art. You have told stories that that have resonated with people and I'm sure transformed other people's lives mm-hmm. as well. So this, this experience is so multi-layered. When you're in the midst of it, can you separate those threads? Not entirely. I mean, sometimes, you know, I think that... Uh, The aesthetic process of it, the process of making art and of using all of the tools that I've gathered over my years of writing and being in school for writing and being a teacher of writing, they kind of act as mediators, right? So that I'm able to relate to the past and to these painful experiences in a way it gives me a little bit of breathing room, right? So it's almost, it's actually less intense than therapy would be because I'm really preoccupied with the task of making art out of it, of making something that will be beautiful and will be relatable and engrossing to a total stranger. And so I'm walking back through these painful experiences and I am in a kind of cathartic psychological experience, but I'm really distracted by the process of making art. And it's in this way that the artistic process and the emotional process really sort of work together. As someone who has had incredible success with memoir, is there a fear that you run out of your own story to tell? 
You know, I actually live for the day that I run out of my own stories to tell. Um, and, you know, I think I will still write nonfiction. I'm working on a new book. That's um, It's a memoir, but it really sort of looks outward and it's funny, I think. Um, and, I, and I'm sort of excited because I think I might have finally, like, dredged the bottom of my own painful experiences so that now I can write about something a little more lighthearted and really incorporate other people's stories. And who knows, maybe I will eventually get back to my novel. I I hope so. <laughs> when you're teaching creative nonfiction and and helping people share their stories, is that something that they ask about? Like, where do I go from here? If, if I have success, if I get to equal your success, yeah. what's the next step? I mean, I do tell them, you know, you can always turn to another genre if you want to. But, you know, the fiction writer Flannery O'Connor said that if you survived your childhood, you have enough stories to last a lifetime. And I think that that's true, right? That it's not just we, we don't only read memoir for exotic experience. We read it for recognition of familiar experience, to see the things that we know intimately articulated in a way that we can't or are too afraid to. There are so many people who want to share their stories and have amazing stories to share who will never end up in an MFA program or never end up in graduate school and, and mm -hmm. taking taking your class. Is this book for them? Is that your hope that this can go beyond academia? Absolutely. That is my that is my primary hope for this book is that people who who can't come into the writing classroom for whatever reason, but have that that instinct to tell their own story, that this book will function as a kind of permission and guide to that process. It's only been out a few days, so mm -hmm. it's too soon, <laughs> too soon to know if, that, if that's happening or not. But I hope, I hope it travels far. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Melissa Phoebos, her most recent book is Bodywork, The Radical Power of Personal Narrative. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.